Welcome to the Church and Culture Podcast, a weekly discussion with Dr. James Emery White on the latest trends happening in culture and where and how the church should respond. Jim is the founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, president of Serious Times, a ministry devoted to exploring the intersection of faith and culture, former professor of theology and culture at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, where he also served as their fourth president, and the author of more than 20 books. I am your host, Alexis Dry, and I can't wait to dive into this week's conversation. Hello, and thanks for joining. If you were listening last week, you heard Jim and I discuss the very popular process of deconstructing or deconstruction, which involves reexamining someone's, their faith and their practices and their um, associations and their beliefs and essentially stripping them of any type of toxicity or non-truths with the hope of reconstructing something that is healthier. And Mecklenburg Community Church, where Jim serves as its um, founding and senior pastor, is an interdenominational church. And that is, we have people who attend from a variety of faith backgrounds and people who have no faith background at all. And we have quite a few attenders who were raised Catholic. In fact, we often hear this common testimony of someone who was raised Catholic, who then deconstructed from some of the the traditions or practices that they were familiar with, and then started to attend Mech with a whole lot of questions with regards to how to reconstruct their faith. And so today I want to kind of tackle head on with you, Jim, if you're willing, um, the the main difference essentially between Catholicism and Protestantism. And yes, I, I realize this is very... Um, this is very bold ask considering we have about 30 minutes of this podcast, but you feel like you're up for it? Yeah, I'll talk fast. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, as with most topics that we cover on the podcast, we're only going to scratch the surface, but I'm hoping that we can hit at least some of the headlines um, and that that will be helpful for anybody who's listening. So I think we have to start with history, right? I think we have to go back to when Protestantism and Catholicism weren't really two separate things of Christianity, when the term Catholic um, referred to something different than it does now. So can you talk a bit about the pathway to the Catholic-Protestant split, like what was happening that created that division? First of all, on a personal note, I explored Catholicism deeply during my graduate school years, uh, even doing a major research paper on Catholicism that involved um, attending a Catholic church for six months and interviewing the priests, studying the liturgy. I spent time in Rome for a period of study at the Vatican. I have great respect for the Catholic church, and but I'm not a Catholic, and I would be considered a Protestant. But there isn't a bone in my body that wants to denigrate the Catholic church or that views them as anything other than Christian brothers and sisters. But there are differences between Catholics and Protestants, and they are not insignificant. To get a handle on this, you're right, we have to get the history. And so a brief history of the church, because there's no way to understand what separates Protestants and Catholics without understanding of that history. The earliest church in the first 40 or so years following the resurrection of Jesus was essentially a movement within Judaism, a group that believed the Messiah had come. But then around AD 70, uh, Jerusalem fell to the Romans and the Christian movement was dispersed, one of the most pivotal moments in all of church history. The most important church that emerged in the aftermath, as you might imagine, was the one in Rome, which was the world's largest city, the capital of the Roman Empire. Um, During the next few centuries, uh, the church uh, defined itself by four very important words, one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. Uh, First, the church was to be one or unified. Second, it was to be a holy church, meaning set apart for God and separate from the world. Third, it was to be Catholic, 
which simply meant universal. That's what the word Catholic means, universal. In other words, the church was meant to be a worldwide church, one that included all believers under its umbrella. So the word Catholic was being used of the church long before any kind of institution uh, within Christianity used it for its own name. Finally, the church was to be apostolic, which means committed to the teaching handed down by Jesus through the apostles as contained in the New Testament. A major turning point took place in Christian history in the year 312, and that's when the Roman Emperor Constantine converted to the Christian faith. This meant that the Christian church changed from being a persecuted minority to a faith that engulfed all of society, and the beginnings of what would become Christendom was born. But then shortly after that, everything changed again, as in the Middle Ages, or what some have called the Dark Ages. But the medieval era actually lasted about a thousand years, and it wasn't a single unit as Students of uh, medieval history know uh, historians tend to divide it up into three eras, the early Middle Ages, which was from 400 to around 1000, uh, the high Middle Ages, which were from about 1000 to about 1300, and then the late Middle Ages, which was from 1300 to 1500, right before the uh, Renaissance. Uh, it's the early Middle Ages that come closest to earning the nickname Dark. Uh, after the fall of Rome, to the barbarian Alaric in the year 410, there was a loss of learning, there was a loss of cultural um, cohesion, there was a, a loss of order, or as William Manchester wrote, it was a world lit only by fire. During that time, uh, the church was about the only organization around that could provide social glue. So the leaders of the church, they were all known as popes, uh, took center stage and gained enormous prestige and influence, not just in the religious realm, but also socially and politically. But as you might imagine, there were divisions within the unity of the church. For example, there was a split between the Western Latin church, which became the Roman Catholic church, and the Eastern Greek church, which became known as the Orthodox church, and that was in, in 1054. Uh, there were several issues with that split, not the least of which was the Eastern Greek church's rejection of the supreme authority of the Pope in Rome over the rest of the church and the rest of the popes. Um, as mentioned, the term Pope, it, it's important to understand, it, it was just Latin for father. That's what it, it stands for. And it was initially used uh, for any bishop or church leader. But soon around the year 1100 or so, it came to be used as the leader of the church at Rome. And with the split between East and West, uh, he became the leader of the Western half of the church. But that was nothing compared to the biggest historic division of all when would flow uh, one that would flow and come to a head in the 16th century and became known as the Protestant Reformation. There was a clear sense among many Catholic scholars and leaders and intellectuals, and by the way, everybody involved on both sides of the Reformation were Catholic, but there became a sense among a certain group of Catholic scholars, leaders, and intellectuals that the church had drifted away from the clear teaching of scripture on several key issues, and it needed to be brought back in line with what the Bible taught. And so that's kind of what historically sets us up and brings us to, you know, what happened and the divide. Yeah. Now, that was a very concise history that covered a lot of ground, but thank you for that. That was impressive. Um, so you mentioned um, the Protestant Reformation, and there were a lot of figures that were involved in that, but I think probably the most popular is Martin Luther and the posting of his 95 theses. But you mentioned all the players at this point were all Catholic. And as far as I understand, when he posted those 95 theses, um, he, he never intended to split from the Catholic Church only to make changes or to reform it, but that's not how the Catholic Church received him, right? So what, what happened there? No, you're right. You're right. It's important to realize that the spirit of the reformers was just that, reform. 
They never wanted to leave the Catholic Church. Uh, uh, the thought of that would have broke their heart because that was the only manifestation of the church around. And they certainly never lost their understanding of the importance of the church. In fact, one of the leading reformers, uh, a man by the name of John Calvin, uh, agreed with Cyprian of Carthage that, you know, who had said a thousand years earlier that you cannot have God as your father unless you have the church as your mother. And he also agreed with Cyprian's other famous statement that outside the church, there is no hope for remission of sins or of salvation. So he had a very high sense of the importance and centrality of church, meaning that the church is the custodian of the gospel. It's the carrier. It's the communicator of Jesus' message. Uh, they also believe that the church should be one holy Catholic and apostolic. Um, they just felt that the way those ideas had evolved under the medieval church's leadership had become distorted and was wrong, which is why they call themselves Protestants. They, they, they were people in protest. That's, that, so we need to make sure we don't lose sight of what that word means and why they're called Protestants. They were protesting. And so the, the, the term Protestant Reformation is clear. They were protesting for reform. So led by men such as Martin Luther, who posted his famous 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church in Germany in 1517. And when he did, it's easy to remember, it was on Halloween, All Hallows mm -hmm. Eve, October 31st, which is why to this day, October 31st is marked as Reformation Day, Reformation. So the reformers began their great quest to restore their mother church to its biblical form. But their effort, as you mentioned, failed. It failed miserably. Uh, in 1520, Luther himself was excommunicated by the Pope and condemned by the Holy Roman Emperor. And as a result, many Christians felt they had no choice but to leave what had been the mainstream church of the medieval era. And they formed the Lutheran Church and the Reformed Churches, and then later other Protestant denominations, such as the Episcopal, Methodist, and Baptist churches, which meant that from that point on, the idea of there being one church of the one holy catholic and apostolic the idea of there being one church could not be understood in either sociological or institutional terms but only in theological terms hmm. i want to come back to i want to talk about the pope a little more because okay. you mentioned already that the pope was kind of the key figure of the dispute between the eastern orthodox church and then the the, the church in rome but and then the, church, the Pope is still a central figure of Catholicism now, but I feel like as a Protestant myself, I feel like most Protestants don't know what to make of the Pope. Um, we're not really sure what we should think about him or understand what his office is. So can you talk a little bit about that? Like, what is the point of his role and how should Protestants even think about that role? I think the tension regarding the Pope is really um, the tension surrounding the authority of Scripture. And let me, that may not make sense at first, but let me see if I can make that tie. When it came to the apostolic part of the church being one holy Catholic and apostolic, the reformers believed that apostolic authority rested in one and only one place, the teaching of the apostles. For the reformers to be apostolic meant to be true to the apostolic teaching, uh, not some type of apostolic succession of popes in Rome or bishops from Rome. The Catholic church, particularly as it had evolved during the medieval period and throughout the early Middle Ages, believed that Jesus had instituted a chain of authority, initiated a chain of authority that has extended in an unbroken line, beginning with Peter to the current Catholic bishops and supremely the Pope, which meant that the Pope was a representative, the vicar of Christ on earth. As that idea developed, it eventually included the idea that when the Pope uh, spoke in more Latin here, ex cathedra, 
meaning from the chair, meaning officially as Pope, that whatever he said was also infallible. Hmm. And not only that, but that whatever traditions had popped up along the way, because of the unique apostolic role of the bishops and the Pope who were guiding the church during that moment in history, uh, you know, that also became authoritative, as authoritative as scripture. And there was a belief that this was all taught in the Bible, um, primarily from Matthew 16, uh, where Jesus referred to Peter as the rock uh, upon which the church would be built. Uh, many of our listeners might be familiar with that passage where Jesus, right after he asked the disciples who they thought he was, Peter said, I think you're the Messiah. I think you're the Christ. I think you're the, the son of the living God, which was obviously right, the right answer. <laughs> And to which Jesus said, you're right. And I tell you, you're Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And and what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And I'll give you the keys to the kingdom. And that, that was said in that passage. The leaders of the Catholic Church point to that and say, see, case closed. I mean, you know, Peter is special. He's been given leadership. He's in charge. Keys of heaven, ruler on earth. The reformers said, uh, not so fast. Uh, I don't think it means what you think it means. Sure. Um First, no matter what Jesus might have meant about Peter, he didn't say anything about anybody succeeding Peter. There was nothing about succession baked into that at all, not even a hint. Second, there was no sense in the early church that they looked to Peter exclusively after that declaration by Jesus or that he had any authority over the others. Um, this was something that developed only during the medieval era. In fact, in the New Testament, he was accountable to the leaders of the early church and particularly the Jerusalem church. Uh, that was the most prominent at that time. And actually, the leader of that church was James, the half-brother of Jesus. And so even at that time, Peter wasn't leading. And not only that, the Apostle Paul had to publicly correct Peter theologically <laughs> more than once. So there was no sense of his authority, no sense of his infallibility. Third, what seems to be the headline here is not Peter, but what Peter said his confession that Jesus was the Christ, that he was the Messiah, the Savior. In fact, the original Greek language is interesting here when you when you read it in the, in the original Greek. Peter, uh, Jesus starts off by calling Peter by his formal name, Simon, and then he calls him Peter, which was his nickname, which meant the rock. Uh, but here's the wordplay in the Greek. It reads, you are Peter, and he used the word Petros, which means little rock. And then he said, and on this rock, Petra, meaning big rock, I will build my church. Two different words, uh, meaning you're Peter. I nicknamed you the rock, uh, but it's on the rock of what you said, the big rock, the rock of who I am and the world knowing who I am, that I will build my church. And so what we have here is Peter's confession is what will build the church as well. And so while the church is built on the witness of the apostles, which is uh, the New Testament, it is with Christ as the cornerstone. The keys of the kingdom obviously had more to do with Peter, the book of Acts being the one that was used uh, by God to break the message of Christ to the Gentiles and not simply the Jews. And we still hold those keys as we make Christ known throughout the world to those who have never heard, because it's we who make Christ known. Uh, and it's as we make Christ known that people respond to Christ's message. Those are the keys to heaven. So the reformers would say we believe in apostolic authority. But that apostolic authority rests in one and only one place, which is the teaching of the original apostles as recorded in the New Testament. Mm, okay. I hope I'm not chasing a rabbit trail in here, but I think something connected to this that I remember I was surprised about when I was learning about Catholicism is the Catholic Church has a different take on the role of the church when it comes to salvation, like how somebody can achieve salvation 
Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Is that related to this? This is one of the most profound differences and, 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 um, and so let me make sure that I'm, I'm, I'm hopefully going to give it to you in a, in a properly nuanced way. Um, the reformers were concerned that over the years, the mother church had walked away from the idea of salvation by faith through grace. That's pretty serious because that's the heart of the Christian message. But here's what the reformers believed. They believed that Jesus' death on the cross was the full and only payment necessary for our sins. And salvation comes by accepting that free gift from Jesus. Uh, there's not a hidden clause that says we have to earn it, work for it, um, perform for it, or do something to deserve it. And once received, once we accept that, that gift and enter into a relationship with God through Christ, our life will demonstrate enormous gratitude for what has been done for us. And the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life will begin to transform us and we'll be changed from the inside out in tangible ways. And there will be things that we will do as a result of that salvation, including good works and acts of service. But salvation itself does not depend on us doing anything. It's a free gift from Christ. That wasn't what the mother church was teaching. Uh, while Catholics agreed that people are saved by grace through the cross of Christ, grace isn't just given. It, 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 it can't just be um, applied. It has to be um, uh, appropriated through certain rituals and practices and involvements, which by and large come through the church. There um, has to be a certain performance level that you achieve, a certain demonstration that you have to make, a certain level of works that you perform in order to have the grace of what Christ did on the cross apply to your life. So the church isn't just a custodian of the gospel. The church is the means of salvation itself. You are saved in and through the church and your involvement with its practices and rituals and its sacraments. So while both Protestants and Catholics believe that Christ is the one who saves, Catholics believe that salvation is appropriated through such things as good works and acts of service. So the issue of the Reformation came down to a very important question. Um, was salvation appropriated by sinners in a Jesus plus nothing plan or a Jesus plus something plan. Now the theologian in me uh, rebels against reducing the divide between Protestants and Catholics, much less the Reformation to that one divide, but it, it, it is the heart of it. it. It really is the heart of it. And while the official teaching of Roman Catholicism today has been moving increasingly toward the insights of the Reformation, uh, and, um, uh, and you may find that interesting that they're becoming more like what um, Luther and others wanted them to be, uh, particularly after the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s. But that divide, though, is still present to this day, although there's movement in the right direction from a Reformation standpoint, <laughs> which is why if you talk to a Catholic priest, which I've done on numerous occasions, about these issues, they will tell you that salvation is not simply something between you and Jesus, it's between you Jesus and the institutional Catholic Church as the means of bringing Jesus to bear on your life. Um, so that would be the, the distinctions. That seems to provide great context then to one of the the many you know wonderful things that came from the Protestant Reformation. But specifically, our listeners have probably heard of you know the the 
the sola, sola scriptura, there's sola gratia. There's, you know, but specifically scripture alone, that Protestants put a lot of emphasis on the authority of scripture, not plus other things, essentially. But this was in response, though, to the Catholic Church's emphasis on tradition. And so, um, I don't know if I, I don't know what my question here is. I guess can you explain that a little bit? Like, what is sure. what is that? What does sola scriptura mean, and what yeah, does it yeah. what does it not mean? Yeah. Well, as mentioned, uh, the reformers said we believe in apostolic authority, uh, but that apostolic authority rests in one and only one place, and that is the teaching of the original apostles, as recorded in the New Testament. Hence, the Latin phrase made famous throughout the Reformation: sola scriptura, uh, scripture alone. So for the reformers, any idea, any belief, any doctrine, any tradition, any teaching that was not based on scripture was not binding. So in essence, that's the heart of that. Okay. Um, this is a, I'm not going to say it's an easier question, but a more obvious one perhaps, is that the Catholic Bible is longer than the Protestant Bible. Can you explain why that is? It is. <laughs> about seven books or so. I feel like some of our listeners who only grew up Protestant, they're like, wait, what? We're using two different Bibles? <laughs> the Bible is a library. Um, it isn't a single book. It's a collection of books, 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. And the divide is essentially the 39 books before the, the, the coming of Christ and the 27 books following. Uh, the ancient church made it official, uh, that canon, uh, for the Old Testament and Jamnia in AD 90, for the Old Testament in 397 at the uh, Council of Carthage for the New Testament. But they'd long been established. Those, those, th those are dates were formalities. It wasn't a selection process. It was a confirmation process. Uh, the Old Testament Jewish canon was firmly in place by the time of Jesus and New Testament canon was shortly after. But uh, then there are 13 books known as the Apocrypha or the Apocryphal Writings. Um, and these were history books, by and large, written between the time of the Old Testament ending and the New Testament beginning, between Malachi and the coming of John the Baptist, if you will, an intertestamental period of about 400 years, uh, Jewish history during that time. Uh, Jesus never quoted them. He never cited them as scripture. Neither did the apostles. Uh, but they included such books as Tobit, Judith, um, Ecclesiasticus. Uh, first and second Maccabees, um, not titles that the average Protestant would even be familiar with. Uh, but the writings are real and they're historical and, and they're of value. But are they scripture? Uh, Protestants following the reformers say no. Catholics following tradition say yes. Mm -hmm. The reformers have the better case because they're basing the rejection on the idea that the Jews never considered the Apocrypha part of the Old Testament canon. They are not in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, so you might be wondering, so why do Catholics accept them? Well, it's, there's a story. <laughs> uh, when Jerome made the Latin translation of the Bible, known as the Vulgate, he put them in there, uh, included them between the two Testaments, uh, but not as scripture. And he made it very clear that they were not scripture, but they held a secondary status. He just thought it'd be a nice historical addition to the Vulgate. Luther did the same thing in his translation of the Bible. He felt they were profitable to read, but only for personal interest. They weren't scripture, uh, nor should they be considered as scripture. Kind of like maybe in a modern Bible, you include maps or something, you know, a concordance sure. or something. Okay. You know. uh, but here's what happened. People read their Latin Vulgate Bibles without discretion. 
And they read those books just like they read the other books. They read the apocryphal books, Jerome included, like they did the Old Testament or like they did the New Testament. And they just began reading it as scripture and on par with everything else. And because that became the tradition uh, of the people and the Catholic Church places tradition as high as scripture itself, they decided to formally make them scriptures. So in 1546, they extended formal recognition of the apocryphal writings at the Council of Trent. And that was because they had been part of the Latin Vulgate translation. Thus, tradition placed them on a level with the older books. But tradition wasn't enough for the rest of Christendom. Uh, that was not a good argument. And so the Hebrew canon uh, involves the 39 books of the Old Testament. The Protestant canon includes uh, 27 more in the New Testament, so 66 combined. But the Catholic canon involves 73 books, the 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 of the New, and then some of the books, but not all, of the Apocrypha. Would you agree then? I think um, I think you mentioned that Luther had said they're profitable, like they, they can be profitable for reading, but they're not scripture. Would you kind of say the same thing for someone who a Protestant who Protestant who's interested and who's never read them? Like, yeah, I mean, for, I mean, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, it's history. I mean, it's, it's largely history. I mean, some of the teachings that are in there go against uh, scripture, and so you have to read it with a with an eye to you know biblical truth. But as far as books of history, like First and Second Maccabees and things of that nature, I mean, they're, they're, they're interesting in history. I mean, it, it, they were, um, I think that's their biggest value. Okay. Not their teaching, but their history. Okay. Because a lot of it is just recorded history. Interesting. Okay. Um, another, another aspect of the Catholic Church that I think is maybe more noticeable now in this, you know, social justice culture that we live in is apparent discrepancy, I'm going to say apparent, but an apparent discrepancy between the Catholic Church's emphasis on caring for the poor and then the what we see in terms of this ornate richness of a lot of Catholic Church. And this is really like wherever in the world you go. There's Catholic churches are kind of known for being a little bit more exquisite or more luxurious um, in style and architecture. But I can't, I feel like I read one time that there was an architectural there's architectural symbolism there that maybe there's more than meets the eye. Do you know anything about that? I, I, I want to defend the, the med, uh, medieval Catholics, if I can here. Um, I'm on their side and uh, I wholeheartedly support the intent behind the great cathedrals uh, that you see throughout, say, you know, Europe. Um, and it's I've, I've been to as many of them as I can get into. I've traveled in over 40 countries and I, I, I've seen a lot of them and they're amazing. Um, and many of them become Christian pilgrimages to this day. Um, but the goal was to create an atmosphere that would inspire men and women and uh, would inspire awe and would inspire worship. Uh, the grandeur of God, the sacred nature of the church and its sacraments. So it was meant to be stirring. It was meant to be moving. It was meant to sweep you up and to think about the grandeur and majesty of God. It was also evangelistic. Uh, during the medieval era, there was widespread um, spiritual illiteracy as well as actual illiteracy. Uh, people couldn't read. And that's why pilgrimages mattered so much to the pilgrims uh, beyond the relics and the holy places that they would uh, uh, thought that uh, they might bestow grace. Usually the cathedrals they visited took advantage of that by telling the entire story of the gospel through stained glass. Hmm. And that was what they could understand. And so stained glass, they used pictures. And so that wasn't just trying to be, you know, ornate. It was when you actually go to these cathedrals, so many of them, the, the stained glass tell a story. And it takes you either from creation all the way to 
the cross or all the way to the end times and the book of Revelation is fascinating when you actually study the stained glass and, and the stories that it tells. And, um, and, and it's, and it's itself, it's moving to this day. Like one of my favorite places to go is Chartres and, and stained glass that is there, um, outside of Paris and in, in France. But beyond, beyond that, it was, it was, it was very evangelistic. They, they couldn't read, uh, they couldn't, uh, help but see though. And from seeing they could understand and be moved. So it was evangelistic and it's no different today. You know, we're spirits. I've tried, I've made this point many times or try to we're spiritually illiterate today we're visually oriented we're visually informed only now instead of stained glass we have youtube and uh, the church would be as smart to use that as the church in the middle ages was to use stained glass hmm, that's interesting i don't think anybody would have drawn that connection between stained glass and youtube before but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay we're running out of time but i do want to ask one more question it's been really refreshing to hear especially the way that you started the podcast with really so much that we have in common and really the origin of the Christian church. And, and that even though, you know, that division occurred, reform seems to be happening on both sides. You know, just the church at large, the capital C church throughout the world is really, you know, being asked a lot of hard questions and really revisiting of some things. And so I, I guess I'm wondering, like, where do we go from here? Like this yeah. division between Catholicism and Protestantism, do we just accept that as, okay, this is, this was good and we should, this should, it should stay divided or should we be praying to, for a restoration of one holy, you know, apostolic Catholic yeah. church? I don't know. What do you think? Well, yeah. What do you do with the divide? Right. Um, if you're a Protestant, do you say that Catholicism uh, just isn't Christian? I would hope that you don't land there. Mm -hmm. I certainly don't land there. Uh, while some of the official teachings of Rome are considered by Protestants to be in tension with certain teachings of the Bible, both believe it is Jesus who saves. And we sign off together on the most ancient of Christian creeds, such as the Nicene Creed or in the Apostles' Creed. So while Protestants believe that Reformation was needed and that the one true church is no longer that which is headquartered in Rome, there can still be mutual respect and appreciation and even further mutual enrichment. Uh, what's most important to consider is the mere Christianity that undergirds and unites us all. And if you're familiar with that uh, phrase, mere Christianity, because it's the title of a very well-known book by C.S. Lewis, it really has an interesting origin that predates Lewis, I mean, where he got it from. Um, it was first used by the 17th century Anglican writer, Richard Baxter. Baxter lived through the English Civil War between the Protestants and the Catholics. And as a Protestant Puritan, uh, Baxter threw his support behind uh, Oliver Cromwell and the parliamentary forces. Uh, Cromwell then summoned Baxter from his church in Kidderminster to help establish the fundamentals of religion and for the new Protestant government. Baxter did what he asked, but when Cromwell read it, he was none too pleased. He didn't like what Baxter did because he complained that Baxter's summary of Christianity could be affirmed by a Catholic. And, you know, it wasn't distinctively Protestant enough, to which Baxter said, good, I wanted to be affirmed by Catholics too. He refused to allow Christianity to divide people that way or to fall prey to the latest fashion of sectarianism. He felt Christianity was bigger than that. Uh, he was convinced that there was a core of Orthodox Christianity that Puritans, Anglicans, and Catholics all could affirm and should be a source of peace among them. And so back in 1680, he wrote, uh, that he wanted to write as a Christian, a mere Christian. And that's where that mere Christianity yeah. came from. And I would agree. So uh, I think what's healthier is what can we learn from each other? 
you know, uh, so let's shift toward that. What can Protestants learn from Catholics? What can Catholics learn from Protestants? Um, I think Protestants can learn uh, a lot about the sacraments mm -hmm. from our Catholic brothers and sisters. The contemporary Catholic Church revolves around the sacraments, such as the Eucharist or what we would call communion or the Lord's Supper. For the Catholic, this is absolutely crucial for drawing close to the person of Christ, where you can have a personal encounter with Christ. And I think Protestants can learn from that emphasis because too many Protestants don't pay enough attention to the importance of observing the Lord's Supper uh, as a part of their spiritual life. Hmm. For the Catholic, worshiping Christ is the Lord's Supper. That's what Mass is. By the way, Mass is just a Latin term for dismissal. And since that's the last word spoken at a Latin Mass, it just became known as going to Mass. You know, you're there until you hear that final word, Mass, dismissal. That's where that came from. <laughs> So that's how central it is to their faith. And I think they're right. I think theologically it is at the heart of Christian worship and many other sacraments that Christians uh, hold in high regard that Catholics, I'm sorry, hold in high regard would serve Christians and Protestants as well. For example, the sacrament of marriage, mm. uh, which is a right and noble thing to hold aloft and even confession, um, which handled while it's handled very differently in the Catholic church than in the Protestant church, it could serve as a reminder to Protestants of the need to do business with God for the sin in their life. Although we would disagree that it needs to be through anyone, uh, even a priest. When do we confess it? You know, mm -hmm. uh, when do we work it out with God? And sometimes I fear that Protestants have become so private with confession that it's become non-existent in their life. I also think Protestants can learn uh, from Catholics in regard to the global nature and responsibility of the church. And, uh, and I also believe that Protestants can learn from the great social ministry and concern that the Catholic Church has demonstrated over the years, whether it's the works of figures such as Mother Teresa to the Catholic Relief Fund. Um, we should have a, a firm commitment to the poor and the hungry and the naked and the homeless. Uh, turnabout's no fair play. I think that uh, there are a lot of things, important things that Catholics can learn from Protestants. First, that salvation really is Jesus plus nothing. Uh, while many Catholics intuitively know that they won't be able to follow through, to keep it up, to perform, to do well, uh, the performance quota is frustrating. And so sometimes they, they won't even try or they just give up on the faith altogether. I wish I could take my Catholic brothers and sisters out for a coffee and just, hey, let's go back over the story of the thief on the cross. Mm -hmm. uh, today you'll be with me in paradise. And he did absolutely nothing uh, added to that gift. The second issue of the Reformation is that the Bible is the ultimate authority. Uh, it is a book that we can go directly to and apply to our life. Roman Catholics have the dogma, they have the traditions, they have the doctrines, but most of the learning has been disconnected from actual study of the Bible itself. But the biggest thing that Catholics can learn from Protestants is what the Reformation reminded the Christian world about, that our relationship with Christ was a, was a personal one, a personal one. Uh, and you've mentioned this at the beginning, a lot of people who come to Mac from a, a, a Catholic background um, say so they never found Christ in the Catholic Church in terms of a personal relationship with him. They just, that was an alien idea. In the Catholic Church, they knew about God, but they didn't know God. Hmm. Or as I heard one priest put it, and he was very candid, he said, many in the Catholic Church are born and raised Christian, but they aren't born and reborn into Christ. Hmm. And that's huge. Hmm. One of the great dangers of the emphasis within the Roman Catholic Church is that people will confuse dogma with devotion. Uh, works with worship, performance with piety, uh, sacraments with sincerity, and most of all, the church with Christ. There's just a big difference between ritual mm -hmm. and relationship. Mm. 
Well, like I said, I did not give you a lot of time to, to tackle this very large subject, but I think I think that was great. I think that was hit a lot of headlines for people. And if anything, if you have a lot more questions, we'll definitely link in the show notes. I know I've heard you do a weekend message on this, and I'm sure you know, you've vlogged so much on so many things, and I'm sure we've got some things that we can share in the show notes for that as well. But um, like I said, hopefully just this primer on those differences and similarities is helpful, and hopefully you'll join us again next week. Thanks, everyone.